Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. For those of you who are here in the audience and for those of you who are listening at home, I'd like for us to go on a journey together. The journey I'm going to ask you to take, however, won't be a vacation. In fact, it will likely be a little painful. You see, to go on this journey, I need you to reflect upon a moment in your life when you were surviving a trial, a painful, discouraging trial wherein you experienced intense suffering. I need you to go back to how you felt in the midst of the darkness the loneliness, the anger, to the moment when you felt you could no longer endure the heartache. It is this state of suffering I'd like to focus on today. Our mortal life can be compared to a long journey. Sometimes the journey is easy for a time. The path is smooth, the warmth of the sun is comforting, and the light breeze is refreshing. And other times, what seems like most of the time, the journey is difficult. The terrain is steep and treacherous and fraught with all manner of obstacles, some of which cause us to trip or stumble on our way. And sometimes the journey requires us to shoulder much more of a burden, much more than we think we can carry. It is during these turbulent and troubling times of life that the journey compels us to descend into a dangerously deep valley, so deep that we are surrounded by numbing cold temperatures, so deep the descent seems like a bottomless chasm, so deep, in fact, that the unmitigated darkness causes us to question whether or not the sun still exists. It is under these inhospitable conditions that I reverently contemplate Jesus, willingly entering the Garden of Gethsemane to suffer for the sins of all mankind. It is difficult to imagine how he felt at that exact moment. We know from Matthew chapter 26 that the Savior earnestly prayed, asking the Father three times if there were another way to accomplish his purpose. In verse 39, it reads, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The Savior pleaded again in verse 42, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. In verse 44, the Savior prayed again a third time, saying the same words. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explains, quote, The Lord said, in effect, If there is another path, I would rather walk it. If there is any other way, I will gladly embrace it. But in the end, the cup did not pass, close quote. I stand all amazed at the Lord's response as recorded in Luke 22:42, which reads, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This means Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father in order to fulfill the need for an atonement. Jesus, in perhaps one of the greatest examples of humility and faith, 
submits to the Father's will, even though it meant he would suffer unimaginable grief and incomprehensible sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. How can we have the faith and strength to follow the Savior's example, willingly submitting to our Father's will, even when we are in the throes of despair? First and foremost, I think we need to have a better understanding of the purpose of suffering. While no one escapes this life or journey without suffering, we are still conditioned as humans to avoid trials and, adver ad and adversity at all costs. Nevertheless, the amount of suffering in the world is all around. A quick check of the headlines confirm what I'm talking about. Poverty, addiction, illness, violence, abuse, corruption, the list seems to go on and on. Why, you may ask, why does our Heavenly Father allow such horrifying events to happen to his cherished children? Why does he allow us to suffer? In his book, Why Is This Happening to Me?, the Reverend Wayne Monblow explains that one of the reasons God allows tribulation is to transform us into wounded healers, saying, quote, a wounded healer is someone who has suffered, but instead of being self-centered, the wounded healer sees suffering in another centered context with holy compassion and mercy for others. In other words, when we suffer, there is something deep within our soul that changes, that breaks, and then softens. We learn firsthand lessons about pain, anguish, misery, and torment. And then, because we know it, what it feels like to be wounded, we have compassion for others who are suffering and can help heal them. Essentially, our loving Heavenly Father uses times of suffering to transform us into an instrument in His hands, armed with a newly developed nobility of spirit, who is compelled to relieve the suffering of his children. Think about it. Let's suppose for a moment that you've never experienced suffering. Maybe you had read about suffering. Maybe you've even studied suffering. But until you have survived the kind of heart-wrenching suffering that shakes you to your very core, how in the world could you ever develop compassion towards another human being? The answer is, you couldn't. I find it interesting that the word compassion comes from two Latin words, cum and passio. Cum means with or together, and passio means to suffer. Compassion, then, literally means to suffer with. One of my favorite authors and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Victor Frankl, said, quote, what is to give light must first endure burning." Close quote. His quote summons the familiar imagery of the refiner's fire, where the fire, or the trials of life, reshapes us into someone better and stronger than we could have possibly imagined. Ask yourself, how has Heavenly Father used trials in your life to reshape you into a better 2.0 version of yourself? Sometimes we think we know, because of our best laid plans, what our final destination will be. Our Heavenly Father, however, may have a very different plan, a different final destination, where in the end we learn to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
However, to successfully reach the destination Heavenly Father has in store and to become more like the Savior is not a pain-free journey. In essence, there is a price that must be paid in order to become intimately acquainted with our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. President David O. McKay shared an experience of those who traveled in the Martin Handcart Company saying, quote, a teacher conducting a class said it was unwise ever to attempt, even to permit, the Martin Handcart Company to come across the plains under such conditions. According to a class member, some sharp criticism of the church and its leaders was being indulged in for permitting any company of converts to venture across the plains. An old man sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who heard him will ever forget. In substance, he said, I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes, but I was in that company and my wife was in it. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart? No, neither then nor any minute of my life since. The price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay. And I am thankful I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company, close quote. It may seem a little messy from our limited and earthly perspective, but Heavenly Father knows exactly how to guide us to a better destination. Our Heavenly Father is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, omniscient, meaning He is all-knowing, and omnipresent, meaning He is always present, and He knows what He is doing. Author Max Licato has a great little saying he shares when he encounters those who are suffering. He says, quote, you'll get through this. It won't be painless, it won't be quick, but God will use this mess for good. Don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. Do you have faith that your Heavenly Father knows you so well? He knows under what circumstances you will emerge as a stronger, albeit wounded, healer. So you'll become a valuable instrument in His hands to do His work and to comfort His children. Do you believe that God is good? And is it possible that God is still good even when things go, well, badly? The answer is a resounding yes. Author Wayne Montblow explains that when things are going well and we are enjoying the magnificent view from the top of a mountain, we have more perspective and understand that the long and maybe dangerous climb up the trail to the top was all worth it. The problem is no one can stay on top of the mountain for long. Eventually, all of us must walk down off the mountain and into a deep valley. We've all been there, or will be there. During those painful times, the times we spend deep in the valley, remember the promise in Psalms 104.10, which reads, He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. Think about that. The life-sustaining water 
is not found on the mountaintop. It is found in the valley. So when you are walking, as it says in Psalms 23, 4, through the valley of the shadow of death, have no fear. God is with you. Trust him. Trust that he will guide you through the valley and look around. Look for the springs of living water when you are in the valley. When you drink from the living water, you will be sustained through the time of trial and eventually led back to the top of the mountain to sit for a while, where you can once again enjoy a magnificent view. It is imperative to trust Heavenly Father, even when His will seems contrary to your own. When I was 19 years old, my husband and I had our first son, Michael. At birth, Michael's bile ducts were damaged, which meant the bile had no way to exit his liver. Instead, the backup of bile caused extensive liver damage. His damaged liver grew to twice its normal size, encroaching on his stomach and making it difficult to eat. His eyes and skin slowly turned yellow. He developed abscesses of infection throughout his liver. At eight weeks of age, Michael had his first surgery to try to correct the structure of his bile ducts. Then, at nine weeks of age, Michael had another surgery. Months went by. Our son seemed perpetually stuck in the intensive care unit, completely dependent on the miracle of modern medicine. Then came the day that specialists told us Michael wouldn't survive much longer if he didn't receive a liver transplant. And so our request for a transplant went out to every hospital in the United States doing pediatric liver transplants at the time. By the time Michael was nine months old, his future looked bleak. We received word that no hospital would accept Michael as a patient on the transplant waiting list because his portal vein, which is a major blood vessel to the liver, was too small and unlikely to support the blood flow needed for a new liver. My husband and I prayed constantly, asking Heavenly Father for a miracle. And I have to say that God was good. Seemingly from out of nowhere, the transplant team at the University of Nebraska Medical Center changed their mind and agreed to take Michael as a patient, but only under one condition, we needed to move to Omaha. We didn't know anyone in Omaha, but we again prayed for help, and again, another miracle. God was good. My in-laws knew someone in their ward that used to go to church with another family who they think was still somewhere in Omaha. And as it turns out, the Halls, George and Jenny, were still in Omaha and came to the rescue, allowing me to stay with them while my husband finished his military training. We were in Omaha just over two months when another miracle happened. Michael received his liver transplant, and yet again, God was good. Most of the first year and a half of Michael's life was spent in the intensive care unit, and that year I can testify that I witnessed one miracle right after another. It was a tough time, but I could also see that during that time my family was blessed on many occasions. Then the bottom fell out. You see, I thought our family was already enduring suffering in the valley, 
but then came to realize the valley was much deeper than I imagined it could be. Michael caught a severe infection. At the time, he was taking immune suppression medication, which kept his immune system from attacking his new liver. The trade-off was that his immune system wasn't able to protect itself from infections either. I watched in horror as he went from an active 18-month-old who was running around and playing to laying unresponsive in a hospital bed in less than 24 hours. His blood pressure dropped. His heart rate dropped. He went into shock. He started seizing. He quit breathing. The physicians frantically intubated him so a respirator could breathe for him. They desperately tried to maintain a blood pressure by infusing IV fluids as quickly as they could. The fluid eventually found its way into Michael's lungs, which became stiff and difficult to inflate with oxygen. To overcome this issue, the pressure was turned up on the respirator, which in turn caused his lungs to collapse. There was one problem right after another. Again, my husband and I prayed for a miracle. This time, however, the miracle did not come as I had expected. Michael was comatose for almost six months. Every day was a horrific roller coaster ride. One day he would be stable, the next day he would almost die. Then Michael's condition took a dreadful turn for the worst, and this time he continued to steadily deteriorate. The transplant team requested a family meeting. As we walked into the consultation room, I thought, okay, this can't be good. I remember them saying that they couldn't do anything else to save Michael's life. The only option left was to sustain him on a new, and at the time, experimental, heart and lung bypass machine called ECMO. That meant that Michael would have to endure yet another surgery. There was no guarantee that the surgery would work and that Michael would live, but he would surely die if we took no action. My husband and I looked at each other, took a deep breath, and told the physicians that we wanted to try the surgery. Then my husband asked if we could have a quiet moment in the room with Michael before the surgical team took him to the operating room. We shut the door to his room, and my husband and I stood on either side of Michael's crib looking across at each other. I took one of Michael's little hands and tenderly held it in my own and closed my eyes as my husband offered a priesthood blessing. The blessing was the most beautiful blessing I'd ever heard. My husband spoke calmly and deliberately. I patiently waited for the part of the blessing when my husband would bless Michael with the power to overcome his illness. I had the faith that Michael would survive if my husband would just speak the words in the blessing. Toward the end of the blessing, my husband's voice cracked with emotion. Michael, he said, as your parents, we love you very much, but we also know that your Father in heaven loves you and wants what is best for you. Michael, 
If it is Heavenly Father's will that you return to him at this time, know that we will always love you and we will be okay. We will in time heal and we will at some point be together again as a family. I started to tremble and cry uncontrollably. I opened my eyes and looked at my husband. Now, I use the word look, but it probably looked a little more like a glare, like I couldn't believe what he had said. No, it was all wrong. He was supposed to bless Michael to get better. My husband blessed him wrong. I wanted to call for a do-over but I figured that wouldn't be appropriate. Heavenly Father couldn't take my only child away from me. We'd survived so much and against all odds. Why? Why would Heavenly Father get us this far only to call Michael home? For a fleeting moment, I couldn't help but think, if God lets Michael die, then I will know that God is, in fact, not good. My husband looked at me with a sad but determined expression and said, it's time we turn this over to Heavenly Father and his will. We need to have the faith to let Michael go if that's what he wants. I was angry, I was sad, I wanted to scream, but I also couldn't deny how strong the spirit was in the room. The two of us stood in silence for a few seconds with only the sound of the heart monitor bleeping in the room. Okay, I finally said. If it's Heavenly Father's will, I'll accept it. I remember walking with the surgical team to the end of the hall, Michael in his crib surrounded by half a dozen people pushing his bed and all the life-sustaining machinery and tubes that were attached to him. My husband and I kissed Michael, told him that we loved him, and went back to the waiting room where the surgeon would be able to find us to report on Michael's condition after attempting the surgery. About 30 minutes later, Michael was wheeled back to the ICU right past the waiting room where my husband and I were seated. We were confused. We had been told that the surgery would take several hours. As we stood up to follow the entourage of medical professionals pushing Michael back into the ICU, the surgeon caught us. I don't know what happened, he said. But before we started the surgery, Michael's condition stabilized. At this point, we don't need to resort to surgery. We'll wait and see if he continues to stabilize. And stabilize, he did. That day was a major turning point in Michael's recovery. Every day he continued to improve. He never needed the surgery, and a few months later, he came home for the first time in almost a year. It was another miracle, and God was good. The story has a good ending. Today, Michael is 30 years old, happily married with an adorable son, and is sitting with my family in the second row. The question remains, though, If Michael would have died that day in the ICU, would that mean that God was somehow missing, that God didn't care, or that God was not good? I testify that Heavenly Father remains all-powerful, all-knowing, 
and is ever-present. I learned in a very painful way a profound lesson that day, that I needed to have faith in God the Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ. I needed the faith to accept Heavenly Father's will, regardless of what that entailed. And I needed the faith to maintain my testimony in times of happiness and in times of sorrow, during my time on the mountaintop and while in the valley. My dear brothers and sisters, I testify of our Heavenly Father's goodness. I testify that He loves each of us and wants what is best for us. I know that sometimes what He sees as our final destination isn't always the same as what we have in mind. There will be trials and suffering in life. I testify, however, that it is important to trust God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, whether you are on the mountaintop or deep in the valley. They love you. And when you are asked to take a journey to the lowest part of the valley, to your own personal Gethsemane, have faith. Don't stop believing. Keep on going. And always look for the sweet spring of living water to sustain you during the most troubling times. Embrace your role as a wounded healer. Follow the example of the Savior and know that God will always use this mess for good. Have the faith, brothers and sisters, and the courage to do His will. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.